When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, February 24th, 2022, I'm Matt Belinsky, and this is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. So the two issues that have been dominating the news the last couple weeks, that would be the Russia-Ukraine crisis and then the situation up in Canada with the Freedom Convoy and the protests blocking the Ambassador Bridge in Ottawa, essentially blocking off the American-Canada border and the Canadian government's pretty substantial uh, measures to go and break the blockade and break up that protest, including invoking the Emergencies Act. I'll be talking about Russia in detail in a few minutes. And also later in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with an incredible young journalist named Rav Aurora one of the brightest young minds in independent journalism. Um, he caught my eye uh, about a year and a half ago with some of his work um, in response to the uh, the BLM riots and anti-police protests back in 2020. And since then, he's been catching the eye of a lot of the best and brightest minds um, in the world of independent journalism. Um, Glenn Greenwald, for instance, today, Glenn Greenwald uh, uh, collaborated with Rob to release his piece and his thoughts on the situation in Canada, was recently on the Jordan Peterson podcast, and Rob has really clear-headed and interesting perspective on what's going on in his homeland and we're going to get into detail on that and just to, to kind of frame that discussion so today as I said the Canada situation's tapering down a little bit um, Justin Trudeau lifted the emergency act so the emergency act is an extraordinary measure I want to explain to you what the threshold's supposed to be for invoking the emergency act so here's the text an action or a situation that seriously endangers the lives health or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. Okay, so this is not something that is supposed to be used to address a normal protest or something that uh, that's kind of unruly or other things that can be addressed by normal law enforcement activity. Um, I, I'm not seeing how a blockade of a bridge with some trucks and a handful of surrounding very much peaceful protests, because once again, no matter how they try to frame this for about two weeks, this protest and this blockade went on and there was next to no evidence whatsoever of any actual vandalism, theft, mayhem, rioting, looting, whatnot. So essentially, a bunch of people parking their car on a bridge, assembling for a protest for a couple weeks that included, you know, such dire uh, uh, grave situations like people singing and dancing and like a moon bounced for kids. I mean, apparently that rose to the point at which Trudeau believed that the text that I just wrote you was justified in triggering uh, extraordinary measures, essentially declaring martial law to break to break up this blockade. Um, so some people could say, well, OK, it was an emergency. Um, he invoked the Emergencies Act. They they broke up the protests. They cleared the thoroughfare. And now they can just lift the Emergencies Act as there's no longer an emergency. And I think that really, that's incredibly naive and overlooks so much of the dire impact and circumstances of a government taking these steps towards their towards their own citizens, in particular in terms of financial deplatforming. Think about it. 
if there's kind of mayhem, a, a chaotic protest or something that gets out of hand or s- simply just people blocking a thoroughfare, you send in law enforcement, the police go in, they're allowed to go use physical force to arrest people, to impound vehicles and to clear that thoroughfare. Okay, that this is not something that's outside the scope of what law enforcement, either one is capable of, of uh, addressing or two is intended to address. But they went way beyond that, right? Think about someone cr- commits a crime they don't get their bank accounts frozen and their credit cards deactivated. Someone gets arrested for attempted murder. They don't get their entire financial universe cut off from them. But that's what happened here in Canada. And David Sachs had an incredible piece on this that was published by Barry Weiss's substack called A Social Credit System Arrives in Canada. So what's the idea of this social credit system? And this is an idea that's pretty much taken hold in China, which makes no bones about it being one large surveillance state, but essentially that your activity will be monitored and based on whether or not you're considered to, you know, the the supposed quality of your personal behavior in your day to day life will determine whether or not you're allowed to to access to any basic goods or services or financial institutions. And so here's how Sachs kind of summarized what happened with Trudeau and, and some of the measures that he invoked. Trudeau escalated things further on Tuesday night when he issued a new directive called the Emergency Economic Measures Order, invoking a war on terror law called the Proceeds of Crime and Terrorist Financing Act. The order requires financial institutions, including banks, credit unions, co-ops, loan companies, trusts, and even cryptocurrency wallets to stop providing any financial or related services to anyone associated with the protests. I mean, listen to that. Requiring financial institutions to stop providing any financially related services to anyone associated with these protests. Think about that's a complete suspension of any basic notion of civil liberties. That's a government declaring war on its people. Once again, think about all all the uh, ways that a person can engage in criminality, even up to murder. Do you get your bank accounts frozen other than in uh, very particular circumstances of white collar crime when you're simply not allowed to access your bank account to continue with the crime being alleged? That doesn't happen. Essentially, the government of Canada declared financial war on some of its citizens. And if you look at this, there's no way, there's no thorough dissection of this where this was justified. It's been a complete mischaracterization of what was going on. And once again, they had every right to use law enforcement to break up these protests. These people were breaking the law. They should have been arrested and they should be filtered through the uh, through the, the judicial system with due process and the, uh, the, the presumption of innocence and all that that entails. But that's not what happens here. Trudeau and everybody else involved in the government was were trying to portray this as an actual attempt to overthrow the government. You even got an, a senator from Ottawa, Senator, senator Arnault. This was not a political protest. This was a well-organized and well-funded attempt to overthrow the government. Like You can say that, but, but there's no support for that whatsoever. This was a protest. These were people blocking a bridge. That's it. Go use the, the normal tools of law enforcement to go and stop that. Okay, you don't get to go declare martial law and essentially go enact a bunch of legal measures that were intended for the war on terror, which were of justifiable legality in, in that case either. So I think people need to look at the, and some pe- I think a lot of people are, and I think this is some one of the, the dynamics that led to Trudeau lifting the Emergencies Act so quickly is that he knew that people were not going to stand for this. He knew that, you know, your average, let's call it your, I don't want you to say your swing voter, but your swing resident in Canada was not necessarily buying the story. 
right? Um, that he was turning off a lot of people in taking these extraordinary measures against fellow citizens. And there, are, you know, you can you can call someone an insurrectionist as much as you want, but when people are seeing that these people truly are were peaceful in nature, they're not going to stand for people being financially deplatformed and cut off from financial institutions. Um, nor should they be. But uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot of political fallout here for Justin Trudeau. This did not make him look good. Um, and he was, as I'll discuss with Rob, I think, playing a game he was not meant for. He's not a guy who feels comfortable with in the midst of hostilities. He's not he's not a fighter. And these truckers, the the Freedom Convoy, forced him to get his hands dirty. He needed to throw his weight around. He needed to show off his authority. And okay, he did so. But it's not going to be without fallout. I think he's lost the trust of a lot of people who at one time either were supporters or or were simply kind of non-participants. People who are probably um, mildly involved in the political sphere. And now they're starting their, their eyes, their ears are perked up a little bit wondering, wait, wait a second. We got to be a little more suspicious of the government here. We got to be looking over our shoulder in case they they do a, go ahead and abuse their power. And so at the end of this episode, like I said, my discussion with Rob Aurora, and we dive into this situation head first. Okay, so tonight Russia has invaded the Ukraine, an actual invasion. This is something that had been teased, it had been discussed, and even announced a number of times over the last couple of weeks, including a couple of days ago. But officially tonight was a full-blown ground invasion um, and air air bombardment of the Ukraine by Russian forces. Um, Senator Marco Rubio has actually been documenting this quite well. Um, Marco Rubio, to clarify what is underway, is a full-scale and comprehensive military assault throughout the Ukraine. Airborne and amphibious landings, missile strikes from air, ground, and naval forces electronic and cyber attacks and a large ground force to occupy a large swath of territory. History never sleeps, my friend. Everyone thinks, uh, as Francis Fukuyama uh, infamously put it in his book, The End of History. Well, history is now back with a vengeance. Every time we think that we've kind of settled into this peaceful, stable pattern, you know, we we all eventually learn that that was just an illusion. Some people believe that this, that the Trump election 2016 was the wake-up call there. Um, And very much, if if we weren't already woken up, uh, I, I think we're we're all awake now. And essentially that the international order that was established by the Americans after uh, after the Cold War ended, we was a period of rev- relative stability that that none of us had, nobody had really experienced for for centuries. I mean, the eighteenth, the nineteenth, and twentieth century had been very warlike, very hostile, and pretty an, a pretty aggressive battle amongst various empires and strategic uh, strategic and hegemonic interests. Um, and that's something that we didn't see in the at the end of the twentieth century into the early twenty first century because America was just so dominant, right? And what we're seeing here, okay, so let's let's take this. One one in terms of ethics and morality and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And it, listen, I think that's a very overly simplistic way to look at things. And clearly, listen, any war of aggression the it, it, or, or war of conquest, the aggressor, the the one who first attacks always has a, a certain degree of moral culpability. Um and Vladimir Putin is clearly in that position in, in this case. Uh, and in terms of in, in anticipating, you know, the extent in what way is he the villain, the bad guy, and to what extent can we anticipate this to play out? We still have to look at this through historical perspective because that's the way that Putin looks at it. Um, there's a really good piece that I think everyone should read. Um, Julia Iofi, I think is the way you, you pronounce the last name. It is I-O-F-F-E. It was in The Atlantic from 2018. And it's called What Putin Really Wants. And believe it or not, there was a very good and actually digging in 
to Putin's actual speeches throughout the years and trying to anticipate his real motives and perspectives as opposed to just the the fanciful, you know, fantasies that people dr- you know drudged up about him um during the Trump years most of which at this looking back on it it turned out to be completely incorrect. And this guy thinks historically, okay? He believes in as even as he was kind of documented as commenting to a number of American diplomats during the uh the Clinton and then the Obama years is that he believes that that the relative period of Russia's weakness in the 90s and, and 2000s was just a blip on the radar. He believes that Russia is, you know, he has a lot of national pride and that Russia is a historically significant country and always will be. And that in trying to marginalize Russia and with the U.S. and NATO trying to absorb all the fo- former Russian republics and Eastern European countries into their sphere of influence and prospectively NATO, that that put a kind of uh, uh, a breach in the space time continuum, that that's not how things should be. And the U.S. and the Western alliance was being very short-sighted in seeing things that way, that they could essentially operate uh, uh, operate with immunity and that Russia would never challenge them strategically. And that, of course, turned out to be, once again, taking the morality and the ethics aside, just from a pure strategic pers- uh, perspective, Putin turned out to be right. Uh, eventually, that he, he the Americans would be in a position, would, would lose enough leverage and he would gain enough leverage that he could make a move such as this and he could feel confident enough in doing so. Um, what are the long-term prospects here for Russia and for the U.S.? I mean, uh, the U.S is in no position and NATO is in no position to engage to participate militarily here okay Putin in all likelihood is going to seize significant parts of the Ukraine um, whether he's going to annex the nation itself and it's all going to be part of Mother Russia once again um, that's probably kind of splitting hairs at some point but Ukraine will become a cert- to a certain degree a vassal state of Russia which it to a certain extent kind of was even post Soviet Union um, definitely until there was an uprising against the president who was very Russia friendly in 2014 and he was overthrown which then led to uh, Vladimir Putin to to uh, invade Crimea and annex that section of the Ukraine. So this is not necessarily without precedent. It's just a little, little higher scale. So the U.S. and the Western uh, Western uh, alliance, they're going to have to sanction Russia heavily. That means cutting Russia off from essentially any international economic activity. And I can't imagine that Vladimir Putin doesn't anticipate that. And I, he appears to believe that he can weather that storm. Kind of goes back to the usual suspects and the kind of mythology of Kaiser Soze as Kevin Spacey's character is describing it is that the only thing that he recognized is that all you needed was more will than the other guy. And apparently Vladimir Putin believes that he has the will to do what the other guy won't, that he is willing to make Russia an international pariah, um, that it can survive on its own, that he can starve Europe um, and the West of natural gas and oil and other resources that Russia has, and that they'll be fine and that their strategic alliances are powerful enough to withstand any stranglehold, economic sanctions and stranglehold from the West. Will that be the case? Uh, uh, that remains to be seen. You have to wonder in the back of your mind if this doesn't is not an indicator of stronger ties between Russia and China. We all know China doesn't give two rats asses about Ukraine. They have no moral or ethical qualms with what Putin is doing. And if Russia is now allying itself with China, and this is almost a proxy war in the battle between East and West, the kind of the, the polarity of the China sphere of influence and the American sphere of influence, that's another way to look at this right now. Um, so, of course, you know, we sometimes war is such, it's so cinematic that we sometimes forget the human cost 
cost. Um, and obviously, there is horrendous tragedies occurring as I speak this sentence right now in the Ukraine. Hopefully, the the military hostilities are going to end as soon as possible. Um, I I can't imagine they last more than a couple weeks, given the the relative asymmetry of military power between Russia and the Ukraine. Um, but you've got to anticipate regardless of of the morality of it or him is a bad actor you you can't anticipate that vladimir putin is not being rational in his projections here right that he understands the us and its uh, allies are going to put some economic pressure on him a ton of economic pressure and he's calculated that that russia can withstand that and so it's going that is the thing to keep your eye on why does he think he can get away with this does he think that uh, that the U.S. and Europe, that you know, in killing the Nord Stream two pipeline, um, cutting off the flow of natural gas from Russia to mainstream uh, to mainland Europe, that that is going to, in response, put so much economic pressure and suffering on the European mainland and on the EU. That Vladimir, it, it, his calculations are correct. That he can withstand the squeeze of this uh, of this geopolitical struggle better than the West can. Um, these are the things that we need to be looking out for. So. Um, Everyone, once again, when you look at this situation, I think and I definitely think some people on the right, some conservatives are just really missing the boat here. Contrarian perspective here. This is Candace Owens' tweet from the other day. I suggest every American who wants to know what's actually going on in Russian Ukraine read this transcript of Putin's address. As I've said for a month, NATO, under direction from the United States, is violating previous agreements and expanding eastward. We, capitalized, are at fault. That, that's incorrect. At the same time, understand that the framing of the the framing of the battle between or or the view of Putin as this kind of evil warlord and the United States and its alliance as completely with beyond reproach um you can understand that that framing may be somewhat off and still understand that Vladimir Putin is the aggressive here aggressor here okay someone who initiates the military hostilities regardless of sure just because the US and NATO and the Ukraine did not give in to every single demand made by Vladimir Putin does not mean that that they're in, at fault okay just because you, we would did not the Ukraine did not entirely submit to Putin's demands does not mean that it is the instigator the aggressor in a military confrontation okay and that's just uh, Essentially, the lengths to which some people will go, the super contrarian right wing with Candace Owens and those types in order to put everything on the U.S. because it's currently it's the, the current administration is not one that they respect or or that they support. I mean, that that's not this is not the way to look at things. OK, Putin was the aggressor. Ukraine was under no obligation. There was no breach of an, a treaty, an alliance, a pact or anything uh, to, of that nature that the that was committed by the Ukraine and simply not agreeing to never join NATO, okay, that would warrant um, um, the initiation of hostilities by Putin here. So that that point of view is is completely invalid. Okay, separately from that, you can understand that we may have to reassess what our strategic priorities are um, and the United States strategic positioning, because what we pro- what we seem to have done here is once again, we drag that perspective from the late 90s out way too long and that we assumed that we were the all powerful sovereign na- uh, hegemonic nation and that it, it essentially any country that could even be considered to have been friendly was a candidate to be within our sphere of influence and potentially a military ally, whether in NATO or otherwise. And that was it. That's a perspective that may have been valid in 1998. That was no longer valid, even as late as or as early as 2014 to 16. And it's certainly not true as to as of 2022. And you have to understand that it may not be in our interest to to 
be militarily involved or military uh, to engage militarily on some battlegrounds that we might have felt comfortable engaging on before the Iraq war, before we lost a ton of credibility on the international stage over the course of the last 15 to 20 years under multiple presidents. Okay, I mean, George W. Bush is the one that lit the fuse here, but there's no shortage of blame to go around across a couple different administrations here. Um, So we have to reassess our our strategic interests here because, listen, we're also the American economy is going to suffer. I mean, listen, the market's going to bounce back right now. It's it's an immediate reaction. The Dow futures are down something like a thousand points. Crypto's getting crushed. This is all going to come back eventually and things are going to stabilize. But it certainly does not serve our economic interests to be on bad terms with Russia. I mean, we rely on them for natural gas and other uh, natural resources as well. And given a, a incredibly interconnected global economy, um, cutting off one, you know, one big node in that network certainly is is going to be disruptive to the world economic system. But that's something that's, you know, sooner or later, things are going to stabilize on, on that level. And it's but Biden administration is going to have to reassess domestic energy policy. OK, um, shelving the Keystone pipeline, um, uh, things of that nature. I'm sorry. America has to do everything in its power to be energy independent, okay? And unless something in a lot of the environmental concerns around Keystone, I don't know, dude. I looked into them. The the environmentalists claim that Keystone is going to essentially, you know, melt the polar ice caps within an hour and a half. Like, I don't buy it. They're complete exaggerations. And you have to understand that our ability to extract oil and natural gas and our other natural resources is part and parcel to our national security. That's a reality we're just going to have to accept. So. Um, I think that uh, reassessing, trying this contrarian repackaging of America and NATO as the aggressors and Vladimir Putin as simply reacting to that. No, that, that I'm not on board with that, but also reass- but reassessing our strategic interests and where you know, we may find one, our limits to power and two, our limits on interest and in militarily engaging in certain conflicts. That is those are things that are going to be that need that do need a reassessment. Um, so this situation, I'm, I'm recording this on Wednesday night, literally an hour and a half after the invasion was announced. There's going to be a lot more coming out on this topic. Um, thoughts and prayers with everybody in the Ukraine. Okay, so let's get into some COVID stuff here for a second. I'm not entirely sure how much longer this is going to remain a newsworthy topic, but as of the moment, it is. Okay, so as I've discussed a bunch of times, there's some regions, states, countries have kind of become proxy wars for varying views around COVID, around which policies were correct and whatnot. Um, You got Sweden, you got Australia, um, South Korea, and another proxy battle that that has been waged, at least for the past year and a half, has been California versus Florida, because they're two states that have a lot of of similar characteristics, but took two diametrically opposed approaches to COVID, with Florida being incredibly permissive um, and remaining open for for the, the most part, and California being just so restrictive. So let me take you back to September 2020. Um, I had been in Los Angeles and California for essentially the entire time uh, of the pandemic at that point from March through September. Um, and then uh, actually this is through October. Then the end of October, I went and traveled. I went to uh, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Nashville um, for a moment, and then to Miami, Florida. And I, I, I got to see how the other side was living. And at California at the time was a dark, dark existence. Every there was no indoor life whatsoever. Every 
business was shut down. The streets were still pretty empty. I mean, it, it, it felt like I am legend even through September, October 2020. And if you're just, if you have no frame of res- reference, you figure, okay, well, well, this is what a pandemic looks like. This is how life goes during a pandemic, and everyone has to remain indoors for the most part. And it's going to turn, you know, your wherever you live into a, a darker, you know, less lively place. Um, so then I go and I travel a little bit, and I see, wait a second, this is not how everybody is living. That some of these other states are operating semi-normal. That, that, that while you know there are people wearing masks, um, you have some limitations on indoor occupancy. Some bit you know, you'll you'll see selectively some businesses are closed. There are no big events, but generally, like there are people out on the streets. There's traffic. There's cars. There's there's actual life going on in these cities, and that's what I saw when I went to Texas, when I went to to Tennessee, and when I went to Florida. And I go to Florida and I'm like wait a second Miami it looks like 2019 like everyone seems to be operating completely normally and so then you think well well, okay is that leading to just terror is that leading to COVID just ravaging these places and the the answer was not really I mean if you looked at Florida after after a bit of a rise in COVID cases and deaths in the summer of 2020 into the fall and into the winter I mean no COVID was was pretty low out there and so the thesis of if we allow normal um, if we allow for normal social and business activity, there's just going to be we're, we're going to be ravaged by the pandemic. That turned out not to be true. It was like, OK, you could split hairs over whether, you know, X region that was more open had a slightly higher rate of covid and slightly more deaths and hospitalizations. But you're really operating within some pretty, a pretty compressed boundaries there like they're within striking distance of each other but they weren't with the places weren't within striking distance in terms of life quality you go back to california and it would be like one big funeral and then you go back to florida and and the place would be just brimming with happiness so you're thinking oh i'm thinking well wait a second something's up here like one of some of the orthodoxies that were being told about what happens if you allow your city or your state to remain open simply aren't true okay so this has been an ongoing proxy battle florida versus california so there's a gentleman named andy slavitt um he's a public health official he was an acting administrator for the center of medicare and medicaid um during the late obama administration and he was a vocal critic of president trump um during the pandemic while trump was still in office and then he uh, was high up in the Biden administration. He was a senior advisor um, on COVID and vaccine rollouts um, for for Biden once he took office. So this is a, a surrogate of Joe Biden and the, the Biden administration on COVID. Andy Slavitt is always trying to justify the more restrictive approach that the Democrats have taken, that the Biden administration has taken. And that's that's his shtick, right? He's always trying to justify that. So obviously, as COVID you know, essentially disappears and the measures that he has advocated for for two years now become just completely nonsensical, although they were always kind of nonsensical. He's trying to find cover on how he explains uh, explains this away that it's okay to drop these things now, but wasn't previously. So he goes on a Twitter thread uh, earlier this week, and one of his posts decides to do the California-Florida breakdown. And here is the post. Um, it's a, a a graph um, tracking cumulative deaths and death rate. And then uh, the caption is Florida has a 60% higher death rate than California. Was that at a cost to the economy? No. In 2021, California's economy grew at 11.7%, more than 50% above Florida's rate. Pretending the pandemic doesn't exist isn't a working strategy. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, on its face, uh, that tweet seems 
pretty probative, right? Florida ended up with a higher death rate overall than California. And for this one year period that Andy Slavitt decided to choose, they had a higher economic growth rate as well. Does that check out once you put it to scrutiny? Surprise, surprise, it does not check out in the least. Where to begin with the dishonesty and the inaccuracies in this post? Okay, first off, let's go just to death rate. Um, you have to take into account differing a the, the underlying conditions in the two states. You've got California is the seventh youngest state in the nation. Florida is the fifth oldest. So can you do can you do an age adjusted graph? Can you can you come up with statistics that are age adjusted based on the age of population and the, de- the death rate in that regard? Yes, you can. And as it turns out, both Florida and California in age adjusted death rate did pretty damn well. I mean, I think California was. 15th in the na- 15th lowest in the nation and Florida was 17th lowest. So if you're looking at COVID health outcomes, accounting for the fact that Florida has a lot more elderly people than California, they landed in just about the same place. Beyond that, you look at excess mortality, right? Not just deaths from COVID, but a- a- additional deaths overall. Scott Atlas, a former COVID advisor to the Trump administration, but not a very Trumpy guy. This guy is an, is an independent career beyond. It's not, not heavy MAGA, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Florida, fifth oldest state, opened schools and living normally for a year and a half, avoided severe harm of lockdowns versus California's seventh youngest state stringent shutdowns, excess mortality during the entire pandemic. Both California and Florida are at about 18% excess mortality. Okay. So beyond, because once again, the, the health of your society or whether or not you handled this pandemic correctly is not just a singular function of COVID hospitalizations and deaths. It's were you able to balance the various concerns of the goodwill and the welfare of your people properly, right? So overall, how many more people died than normally during the the years of the pandemic? Florida and California, both at about 18%. So it looks like, you know, California's measures to prevent more COVID deaths seems to have sprung up in additional, additional harm and additional fatalities um, based on other causes. And it landed California and Florida in just about the same spot. One, excess mortality and two, age adjusted COVID deaths, despite the fact that one t- one region allowed uh, essentially normal social and business activity. And the other one essentially created a dead zone for about two years. I, California was absolutely a dead zone through the spring of 2021. Yes. Once things opened up and I believe it was May, April, 2021, I mean, it started to resemble somewhat of a normal society, but I'm telling you, California was not a happy place during 2020 and early 2021. Um, so Andy Slavitt, a guy who's supposed to be incredible, just the utmost incredibility, a surrogate of the president and the Biden administration, just outright lying about the the nature of health outcomes from uh, from COVID amongst these two states. Now let's look at the economy. He mentioned that California's economy grew at 11.7% um, in 2021, and Florida's economy only grew at about five and five and a half six percent. Of course, California's economy grew at 11.5% in 2021. It was closed in 2020. They shut the entire goddamn thing down. Of course, when it's coming from a lower baseline, you're going to have a higher percentage growth. So, once again... Andy Slavitt being incredibly man- manipulative, disingenuous, and dishonest with the boundaries, uh, with the data that he decided to choose. He's lying with data and, tr- and ignoring the lower baseline created by what California did to its economy in 2020 to then try to falsely portray that it grew- because it grew more in 2021, it was healthier. No, it grew more in 2021 because it had been sunk in 2020. Florida sh- showed a more normal 
uh, growth pattern because it didn't shut down its economy in 2020. In fact, Florida throughout the entire pandemic has shown above average, if you're taking all states, above average economic growth and above average job growth every month throughout the entire pandemic. Okay, so the state that remained the most open, that allowed its citizens to live the most normal, still did, did not. Uh, uh, suffer any economic consequences in terms of of growth or jobs okay so that is also was incredibly disingenuous of slavit beyond that let's look at some other factors that imply how a region is doing of california experienced its first reduction in population in recorded history in 2020 in the first time in recorded history more people left california than moved to it in 2020 and you want to know something that repeated itself in 2021 it's kind of a strange pattern Conversely, Florida and Texas had the number one and two in net um, migration inflow in 2021. So lots of people are leaving California and lots of people are moving to Florida and to Texas. So if your your narrative and your thesis is California handled the pandemic well and Florida handled the pandemic not well because more people died in Florida and the economy still seemed to be doing well in California. So you didn't have so so the uh, additional restrictions to reduce COVID. COVID deaths did not harm the economy. That ans- that that simply doesn't add up. It's not true by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, if Florida seems to be doing so poorly, why the hell are all these people moving here? It's not just people; it's businesses as well. California has had two two hundred sixty five companies either move or relocate their corporate headquarters over the past two years. Those are companies including Apple, Nestle, Oracle, Tesla, Gordon Ramsay restaurants. All these companies move their corporate headquarters away from California, okay? And this is even, if, if you want to get into the anecdotal stuff, like one, the anecdotes and the data both match up, right? Everybody here in California knows a ton of their friends that have hightailed it, said, hey, this is just not a happy place anymore. There's crime, we've got crime, we've got homelessness problems. Um, we don't, and you add that to the more drab existence created by the additional COVID restrictions. And, you know, I'm sorry, California's, uh, California's leaders does not protect the general well- welfare and happiness and goodwill of its citizenry. And by all estimations, Florida did. Okay. And so this is more troubling coming from someone like Andy Slavitt. It's like, uh, uh, why is everything need to be politicized? Like, clearly, he's not trying to tell the truth. He's just trying to justify Democratic po- Democrat policy choices. He's just trying to shine a more positive light on the Biden administration's choices. And he's using ca- the California versus Florida example as a proxy for that. And it's even stranger that he thought he could get away with it. But a, a lot of people will indulge this. They'll take one look at this graph and his his commentary to it and think, yeah, OK, more people died in Florida and then California and the economy in California grew in 2021 more than it grew in Florida. So, okay, the the economic harm uh, must have not been that bad either. And they won't look any further than that. And this is just so cynical and it's so condescending. And someone who's as high up in the administration as Andy Slavitt, it just it really it, it sends a terrible message and it really is a bad omen for where we are that the Biden administration wants to use this is this person as their messenger and that this is the battle that they want to fight, that they're going to hold up California as the gold standard of how we should have handled covid. The economy did very well. Um, it, it had you know good health outcomes, but it's simply not true. You have to ignore so much. You have to ignore all the crime. You have to ignore the entire the excess mortality. You have to ignore all the net outflow migration. The fact that so many people want to leave this state right now that matters you can't ignore that 
But hey, because they they tra- because the state of California tracked most closely to Democrat Party orthodoxy on COVID, that's the story they're going to go with. And it's once again, it's incredibly dishonest. And I'm not here just to criticize the Democrats because they're Democrats. I'm I'm criticizing the Democrats here because they're trafficking in lies about things that really impacted people's lives. They chose a course that really impacted people's lives. It changed communities forever. I'm sorry, it's going to take a long time for California and Los Angeles to recover quality of life, okay? And if they want to make the argument that it was justified based on the health outcomes, I don't believe that holds up. I don't believe that's, I don't I don't buy their argument and I think they're going to keep on trafficking in this, but it's clear that this is what they're going to do. They're going to hold California up as the gold standard. They're going to vilify and demonize the approach that Florida took and I don't think that story checks out. Much like Justin Trudeau noticed that the political tides were turning against them, I think you're seeing that the political tides are turning against the Democrats on this as well, particularly as even, you know, many blue cosmopolitan regions start to lift all their COVID restrictions. I think you're going to see a lot of strange stuff on them trying to explain away the more restrictive approach that they took because people, whether or not people support it at one time, they certainly do not support it any longer. And now coming up in just a minute, my discussion with Rob Aurora on all things on the recent situation with the Canada Freedom Convoy, Justin Trudeau's uh, invocation and then release of the Emergencies Act and uh, how this really seems to be one of the many interesting kind of proxy battles that tell the story of COVID over the last couple of years and kind of a, an oddly and eerily poetic way for us to it's essentially end the pandemic after two years. Super interesting discussion and I hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the prevailing narrative. I am here today with Rob Aurora, one of the top up and coming independent journalists in the game. Rob, you're coming to us today out of Vancouver, Canada. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And so Rob and I met uh, a little while ago and, you know, he was in town from Vancouver. We were in Los Angeles and Rob was describing to, to me how you know, we probably wouldn't see each other in person anytime soon um, because Rob was unvaccinated and was going back to Canada. And um, the, the laws in Canada prevented anyone who's unvaccinated from from air travel, domestic or international air travel. The rules and regulations around vaccine, uh, uh, around vaccine uptake obviously um, became a hot button issue recently as it became ground for the recent Freedom Convo convoy protests in Canada and the government's ensuing crackdown. Um, and so Roth has been all over this topic and today released a piece called uh, From a Young Canadian, Authoritarianism, Media Propaganda and Repression, and essentially his perspective on the government's ongoing despotic response to the convoy protest. Um, so Rav, we'll get into the, the meat of that in just a second, but you know, wanted to, to frame this discussion for everybody with just real quick on, on the story that that you the, the piece that you originally wrote that brought you to the public consciousness and then some of the work that you've been doing around myocarditis um, that has also got a lot of publicity and very much feeds into the the current battle over uh, vaccine policy in Canada. Mm. Yeah, so the piece that brought me to the public consciousness was my essay on white privilege. This was 2020, summer of 2020, uh, July or August. Um, and I wrote this a big essay on the fallacies of white privilege and why I thought that our current discourse surrounding identity politics and racial privilege was uh, eroding our common ground and our common humanity. And so I was looking at uh, disparities across the board in health, education, income, crime, and, and 
puncturing this whole narrative that uh, white Americans or white Canadians are surpassing uh, minority uh, individuals, people from different uh, backgrounds, from Africa, from the Middle East, from Asia. Um, so I was looking at that and showing that in, in terms of education, in terms of income, white Americans are not even close to the top. It's like several other groups like yeah, Indian Americans, Pakistani Americans, Nigerian Americans, Taiwanese Americans who are out earning white Americans of higher levels of education, um, uh, higher net worths, higher um, high school graduation rates, lower crime rates. Than it. And, and so I provided this alternative perspective during a time when race had become such a hot button topic and conversations around systemic racism and white privilege were dominating the media discourse. So I provided this new perspective, which kind of brought me into the forefront of the conversation. And uh, yeah, yeah, since then, I've been writing about crime, policing, what's been happening in Minneapolis after George Floyd happened and after the police retreated and the rise in crime there that nobody's covering. Um, and then I've been following the identity politics discourse since then. And then last summer, I would say, when BC, British Columbia, the province I'm in right now, announced their vaccine passport system, um, which barred unvaccinated people like myself from working out at the gym, from going to a bar, nightclubs, large gatherings, weddings. And then when Trudeau announced federally that I was unable to uh, leave the country or fly within the country or travel within the country through train, by train rather, um, after like November 30th, then I was like, whoa, we are sliding into a full-on tyrannical regime that I just did not know was possible. And, you know, from the start with the whole COVID discourse, I was never really following it that closely. Like, you know, cases are rising, cases are falling, new, you know, ICUs are rising, they're falling, and all these different waves are happening, and the different variants, and it was just too much for me to follow, and I just, I just didn't really care, as long as my freedoms were still mostly intact. But then, when my freedoms were taken away, then I was like, okay, now I have a platform, and I need to voice my concerns for all these people who don't have a platform, and do the responsible thing, and write about it, and voice my opinion even though it creates a lot of backlash and you get attacks for being an anti-vaxxer or some right-wing extremist, or you, you want to kill grandma, some, some unempathetic kind of person. So I started writing about vaccine mandates and that kind of slowly went into writing about myocarditis. Uh, Which it was another kind of hot button, very controversial proxy war uh, around uh, around COVID because it became um, the the uh, risks of myocarditis in particular case groups from vaccination um, did seem to give rise to concern and that that. That has then been kind of, you know, there's been strong opposition to those concerns, which you seem to have researched very thoroughly. And I think, you know, as you were mentioning, there's kind of a common thread to all of this, whether it be the conversation around racial preferences, privileges and oppression, um, the va vaccine mandates in general or the uh, concerns about myocarditis in that the media narrative and the reality on the ground don't seem don't seem to align that once you start to put thing, put <clears throat> the media narrative under scrutiny, it, it doesn't really seem to hold up. And the response to someone noticing that and vocalizing the that conflict seems to be pretty harsh i imagine the the response to your original writing on the white privilege issue and your response uh, the response to your writing on myocarditis seem to have quite a few commonalities 
Yeah, yeah. And then also, as we'll talk about in a bit, uh, the writing today about uh, the truckers' convoy protest. So it's the same thing. It the, the the media is just so out of touch from reality. It's almost like they've taken, you know, some kind of drug, right? Some kind of perception altering drug, which is what which is progressivism or wokeism or you know whatever radical leftism, you know, critical race theory you know, radical gender theory, all these things. It's like these things, these radical ideas that come out of the social science departments from elite universities, they are so disconnected from reality. They're, they're completely delusional. I mean, there's so many examples like this. I mean, one being that I've written about this idea that there is some broad consensus among black Americans that, the police are to be feared. They are something that we need less of. They are a threat to black communities. It's like that. That is a that, that's the prevailing wisdom. Yeah, that's a, per, a, a a POV that's reflected by most of the media class. And then every time actual members of that community or inner city communities are polled, the polling shows something completely different. Oh yeah, yeah. No poll after poll uh, shows that black Americans. Um, uh, a majority of them want the same level or higher levels of policing. And then when you poll or when you interview people within the communities that are most vulnerable, like Minneapolis, they're, they're even more desperate. Like they're like, we're dying for the police. We're calling for the police yeah. and, and they can, and they can't come because they're short, like 400 officers because after George Floyd, the politicians said they would abolish them or defund them. Mm-hmm. So police were demoralized and they left and crime rose. So, and that, that, that's just one example. Um, but it's it's the same kind of dynamic when it comes to uh, vaccine mandates uh, as well. You know, like it's. And so let's it, you know something I want to I want to back up just one second because your uh, your work on myocarditis and this is still a, a, a topic that so many people have a different perspective on a uh, different understanding of where the consensus is at. Um, it seems to be that there was a, a palpable and justifiable concern about a rising, um, the rising prevalence of cases of myocarditis, which is a low, low grade heart issue um, with, uh, you know, in response to the vaccine in particular amongst young people who also were seemingly not as at, at, at as much risk from of severe outcomes from COVID. And then, you know, it, it, this was all filtered through the, um, conversations on the Joe Rogan podcast because he mentioned this often and then a kind of a contrarian voice came on his podcast and mentioned well um, it seems like the risk of myocarditis from contracting COVID is more significant than the, the risk of contracting myoc- uh, myocarditis from uh, the vaccine and that seemed to shut down the conversation and, and Rogan acknowledged you know, hey I might not have thought about that and that seemed to be a pretty strong counter argument but your research actually shows something different your your research shows that if you isolate one particular and pretty expansive um, uh, identity group and that would be young males ages I believe 16 to 24 the <clears throat> the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine actually is is higher than the risk of myocarditis from contracting COVID. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's actually goes up until 40, according to a new paper that came out end of December by researchers from Oxford. So, so not, not, not fringe conservative scientists, but people from mm-hmm. Oxford, they did this analysis um, showing that for men ages 16 to 39, the risk of myocarditis is higher with the vaccine 
than from COVID. Um, but the it's specifically not just vaccinations in general, but with uh, Moderna dose one, two, and three, and Pfizer dose two and three. Mm-hmm. So, so with F- Pfizer dose one, no, uh, but with the, all all the Moderna doses and Pfizer dose two and three, the risk of myocarditis is significantly higher. Um, and uh, other studies show this as well. And the study that uh, that individual brought on, the Australian uh, political commentator Josh Seps, mm-hmm. th- that study is fairly dated. There's been better research done on this afterwards. That study, I think, goes back to last spring or last summer. And in that study, as was shown by a later study, um, which had uh, Dr. Tracy Hogue, who's an epidemiologist who I've interviewed before, mm-hmm. um, in her study, which is featured in The Guardian, and that study, uh, which Joe Rogan featured in his podcast a few times, that, that was a study he brought up when he was debating Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And he brought up that study, which showed that for boys ages 12 to 16 or 14 to 16, I think it was 12 to 16, the rate of myocarditis is four to six times higher with the vaccine than from COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, uh, uh, it, it's, and, and it actually was, it was worse than that. It was the, the risk of myocarditis is higher from the vaccine than from risk of any hospitalization from COVID, not just myocarditis. So it's massive disparity. Um, and that shut, and that study sh- uh, highlighted that the, the initial study that was done, which Josh Seps brought up, Sorry, this might be confusing. That study underestimated um, the uh, underestimated code infections, and so that threw off the denominator and made it seem uh-huh. like myocarditis is much higher with COVID than it actually is. But if you take a, a, a much more accurate uh, estimate of COVID infections, um, which is a much higher rate because so many people don't test, right? So many people mm-hmm. are asymptomatic. Once you do that, you find that myocarditis from COVID is extremely rare, generally mm-hmm. extremely rare, but among young men. It's 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 incredibly rare. It's it's so small. You, it's it's almost unquantifiable. So um, Josh Steps brought up that study, and Joe Rogan, who had seen the other study, was a bit confused, but he was still kind of willing to acknowledge it. And then I had this long piece, which uh, I think Matt, you and I might have talked about this when I was in LA. This piece I'd, I'd written since like September, and slowly kind of built more and more content into it as more studies and more research came out, mm-hmm. but. No publication would accept this piece because it was so controversial and 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 for a variety of other reasons, like me not being a science journalist or somebody with a bachelor's degree in any scientific program. So I, I, had, a, I, I had a pretty difficult time trying to find a publication to publish this. And so eventually- And this I is including traditionally, let's call it right-leaning publications. Nobody wanted to touch this. Yeah despite the fact that it was incredibly comprehensive, detailed, and, and well-researched, right? It, it, it seems like people would want to publish pieces that are, are more granular in nature and, and, and more specific and targeted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if, if I was making the rules, if I was the head of the New York Times and looking at some, you know, writer who's done all this research, who's interviewed epidemiologists, doctors, medical experts from Stanford, like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who I interviewed mm-hmm. for the article, Dr. Mike Hart from Toronto, excuse me. It, you know, if I was setting the rules that, you know, that kind of a piece would be in, you know, one of the front pages of the New York Times, or, you know, it, it would be featured 
there would be space for that because it's such an important topic and not to not to be not to sound arrogant here but that 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 piece was very well balanced looking at the research and the anecdotes and talking to the experts it, not it to, was no and anyone anyone yeah. out there and, and once again this for some we the discourse around covid has all these strange proxy wars right and myok it was uh from treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and impacts and reactions like myocarditis, another one of these these kind of uh, become the battlegrounds over who who is a denialist and who is a caring individual, right? And uh, if you are if you do question the risk uh, of myocarditis from the vaccines or question um, the the nature of the conversation between Rogan and Zepps, um, I, I encourage everyone to go check out Rob's piece and see does make you know make up make up your own mind. See, does this seem well-researched? Does this seem like it anticipated and addressed counter-arguments, right? Because that's that's what we're trying to do here. And yet we we see this habitually and that, and it, it kind of speaks to the nature of COVID discourse as very dogmatic, that anytime that there is a valid, legitimate argument that there might be a weakness in one of the orthodoxies, that doesn't necessarily that is not necessarily fatal to the entire orthodoxy. You're not trying to claim that the the vaccines don't work or that anyone uh, that they pose more risk, uh, you know, risk of harm than benefit. But you you narrow down one particular aspect of this that does kind of poke a hole in their argument and they just can't even entertain it. They cannot even they cannot even uh, uh, allow for one uh, acknowledge one weakness in the argument because that would seem to bring down the whole house of cards. But but that would seem to reflect more on there uh reflect more on um reflect more on the foundation of the argument in the first place than uh, in contrarian arguments yeah yeah you know it's it's so bizarre how these orthodoxies form and they're so rigid and questioning them is heretical and it's it's just the orthodoxy is established and for some reason the incentives are in place the structures are in place and it's become this this rigid ideology of sorts, and you know shifting from that or making any concessions or or changing with the the the, the progression of science available evidence, just, yeah, it, yeah, the, the newer evidence that comes is just not is just not possible uh, with, with with the current dynamics that we have. It's you know like. We're, we're, we're mandating boosters now in over 300 U.S. colleges have mandated booster shots for undergraduate students. Like, what are we doing? Like, like we have, you've already mandated double vaccination. There's already a massive violation of basic human rights and civil liberties. OK, and you've already done something that is so egregious to me. And now you're mandating a booster shot that has no long term efficacy or safety data there's they haven't studied the booster shot because it's so freaking new and what mm -hmm. the implications are for myocarditis we don't even know what's going on like we'll, yeah we'll find amongst out a, a low we'll, risk we'll, group we'll, and yeah we'll, we'll and find we'll find out in six months to a year what's going to happen you know that there was um recent uh, a couple of students from yale i believe um who got myocarditis uh, one of which uh, individual i tweeted this out um uh he had a fatal case of myocarditis after getting um so there have been fatal was. cases documented oh there have been fatal cases of myo of vaccine induced myocarditis in the u.s now mm -hmm. i'm not saying those that there are there's an epidemic of people dying from this at all i'm saying mm -hmm. that 
this is a real problem. And the average case of myocarditis is usually like not requiring like heart surgery or heart transplant or anything of that magnitude. But an average case of myocarditis is usually three to six months of no physical activity or very limited physical activity, no sports, no working out, even walking upstairs could be limited. Um, taking several different medications with side effects and being at a lifelong risk of cardiac implications, um, mm -hmm. as I'm, as I outlined in my article. So, so that's no big deal. Um, but that in, in various debates I've had with other individuals that they, they say like, Oh no, that's just a small price to pay for, you know, preventing death from COVID or preventing hospitalization from COVID. But when we're talking about individuals in a low risk population, that's, that's not a real risk. And so yes. myocarditis is a higher risk. And so thankfully this article I wrote, it, uh, it went viral on my Substack. Um, it, I think over a hundred thousand people read it on my Substack, which is great. Are um, you seeing people, a warming up to the ideas presented in that? There's a bit, bit of a breaking of the ice that there's not quite as much resistance today as there was maybe two, three months ago. It's, it, it, it's hard to say because it, it's, it's hard to have my work it's hard for anybody's work to be read by those outside of their bubble. Mm -hmm. So like, like for me, I've been getting, you know, so much reinforcement from, you know, Jordan Peterson who shared the article, uh, Joe Rogan who shared the article and uh, 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 appreciated the analysis that I gave because that was an issue that he had been grappling with and he'd been attacked for that. So I, I've been getting a lot of great feedback from high places. Um, but, but I have been getting some critiques from other uh, individuals who I, I cannot name, unfortunately, people, uh, we will let the haters stay anonymous for the moment. They, they can be, but, but people from pretty high places have, have critiqued it as well. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, the conversation, I think on the ground, when you talk to parents, right. It's like, there's no like desperate urge to vaccinate their, to their teenagers. Right. Even if you look at polls, uh, parents are far more hesitant to vaccinate their children their teenagers than themselves right but with but with you know the, these conversations to some extent are kind of irrelevant to the medical establishment to big pharma to to mm -hmm. the federal and, and state governments we're all colluding and have passed these draconian measures to mandate now booster shots as we're seeing and th there seems to be very little uh impact from our discourse on what's been what's being passed in terms of legislation which i, I think is one of the, the greatest travesties of our time no doubt no doubt and so I'm, I'm obviously trying to kind of gauge the tenor and the views of you know people up in canada and and because we hear you know we're hearing some of these more divisive um issues and activities going on in canada in particular in re reactions we'll get to in a second the freedom convoy and to a lot of us here in the states and and we do you know have more of a a kind of uh you know enduring heritage um in terms of freedom and whatnot and we think how could this be happening in this kind of quiet pleasant neighboring country canada so it's tough to gauge how the you know how, what's going on with boots on the ground and how the population actually feels um so getting to your piece um released today regarding um the canadian government's reaction to the recent freedom convoys um what what is the the tenor amongst the population um do you know they're they're trying to pull this and it seems that there is a slight majority in favor of taking some of these extraordinary um, and extrajudicial measures um, that the Canadian government has taken uh, against the, the trust. 
truckers, not only to arrest them and to uh, impound their vehicles to unclog the thoroughfares, but also, you know, taking uh, taking some uh, actions against them financially, um, freezing bank accounts, um, investigating crypto wallets and things of that nature. Um, do a lot of people see this as an ominous overreach or do they find the truckers as a, a thorn in the side and they're just happy to remove the thorn? Yeah. So it, it, it depends who you talk to. If we're talking about provincial leaders, so in Saskatchewan, Quebec, Alberta, I believe Manitoba as well, they all express their opposition for the invocation of the Emergencies Act, uh, which which Trudeau um, invoked himself. So all these provincial leaders have opposed it, saying this was about a week ago at the time that, hey, we have enough law enforcement resources. We don't need to declare a national emergency over what is just groups of, you know, minorly disruptive protesters mostly cheerful and peaceful people who are just yeah, having it's a, a good normal time normal law enforcement matter yeah 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 it's a normal law enforcement matter so the provincial leaders have opposed it um but if you but but people like jagmeet singh leader of the ndp he's hesitantly supported this measure um, even though he's supposed to be standing for the working class as mm-hmm. whatever the new democratic party, the, the socialist um, leaning party, they've taken a very odd stance on this. Um, and then that, and then, and so there is this coalition, there is this population in Canada that listens and watches what the CBC says, the Canadian broadcasting corporation, mm-hmm. global news and the Canadian mainstream um, narrative on this, which has been that on the streets of Ottawa, there has been this extremist, radical, right-wing, racist, Nazi-sympathizing group of people who are, who are you know, yelling out obscenities, yelling out racist things, um, have swastikas and confederate, confederate flags, are harassing residents, um, are attacking police officers, attacking journalists and, and people in the media, um, people who are conspiring to commit some kind of violent crime, people who are armed and want to do harm. Th- that That is the perception that you get when you watch the CBC, when you watch the mainstream news. And so there's a large percentage of people in Canada who only listen to these mainstream media networks. And so to and be all, clear, in, in, in yeah. Canadian Broadcasting Channel, that's a government-sponsored organization, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've been paid by the Trudeau government. Um, se- several months ago, they, they got a bump in their uh, annual funds for their, uh, for their organization, which obviously there's a major conflict of interest there, which uh, for some people... It, for, for some reason, that's just not acknowledged that, that right, how this crazy is state it is. sponsored. This is truly state yeah. state sponsored media. Yeah. The news, the the news channels and these journalists are in in essence surrogates of the government. I mean, I think that's it is a concept that's still somewhat foreign to us here in the states because we all always uh, imagine there being a free press and we have principles grounded in free speech. And it's hard for Americans, particularly when viewing other Anglo nations and cultures, to understand that other Western and Anglo nations don't necessarily have any it, don't have those historical principles to think, OK, wait a second. The the 
um, our, our top news channels are actually funded by the government. These people, their salaries and their their careers are uh, kind of they are essentially under the thumb of the government. And that's got some implications that I don't think people in the States are quite understand. Yeah, no, it's it's so bizarre. So many people in the U.S. and the U.K. don't even know that this is true. And then when they find out, they're like, well, why? how is that legal? How is that not a major issue? Why is that not being shut down? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, it's not being, you know, these corporations are taking in these financial incentives because they know like the the the, the audience of the CBC and of Global News has plummeted over the past several years with the rise of podcasts and individual um, media platforms. So they, yep. you know, they need uh, these financial incentives. Otherwise they're going to be dead in a few years. Right. Yeah. So, so they need, they need the state sponsorship. They need the support of the federal government in order to keep their media uh, up and alive because so many people are not listening. People are listening to uh, Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro mm-hmm. or Sagar and, Sagar and Jetty and Crystal Ball's show Breaking Points or The Hill, mm-hmm. Kim Iverson. People are listening to that. They're not listening to CBC or Global News. You know, so and I guess that's my question, right? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of people up in Canada who are watching mainstream news sources that, that are very... Um, very much concentrated around one narrative that, like as we said, is an extension of the government. Are people seeing, are even people who might have thought that the truckers were a nuisance and needed to to pack up their tents and go home, are they concerned or have they changed their tune in seeing the response here and, and the seemingly disproportionate exercise of the Emergencies Act and freezing bank accounts and financial deplatforming? I mean, has, has that kind of... Has has that shifted the goalposts for anyone who might have been on the side, been against the truckers previously, who who are now off put by this and say, okay, wait a second, this is immense government overreach. This is not terrorism. This is not insurrection. This should have been handled through traditional uh, through traditional measures um, and acknowledging due process and are concerned about a suspension of of civil liberties. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, I would say that for a certain segment of people, no, unfortunately, they're still being fed these lies by the Trudeau government in collusion with the mainstream media that mm-hmm. that it is important to crack down this hard because if you like if you truly believe that this is a group of violent extremists who want to like overthrow the government, who are sympathetic with Nazis and racists and misogynists and homophobes, mm-hmm. then yeah, I mean, sure, freeze their accounts, you know, seize their vehicles, stop them, arrest them, because we want to, like, we, we don't want white supremacy, we don't want extremism, we don't want violence, we don't want these radical groups. So for a, a lot of people, that that's kind of what they're being told, and they're not critical of the information that they're receiving, and to some extent, not to take away their own responsibility uh, in this issue. But to some extent, right, if you're working a nine to five and then, you know, you're checking Twitter every now and then, or you're, you come home and you got to feed dinner to your kids and you got to clean the house and do all these different things and you play CBC, mm-hmm. you're going to get a very limited understanding and you don't have time to, you know, dig into yeah. the facts or read these alternative media sources and read these long essays on Substack, like the piece that I published with Glenn Greenwald, 
they don't have time for that. And so yeah. they're, they're just listening to the media and that's all they're getting. However, there is the Canadian Civil Liberties uh, Association that have strongly opposed this. Um, there are a number of, uh, again, this is alternative sources still. So we're not, I'm not talking about mainstream sources, but a lot of alternative independent journalists here in Canada, like Jamil Giovanni, um, who's kicked off his radio show uh, several weeks ago for uh, reasons that have to do with his beliefs and for him being a, a, a black individual with the wrong mindset on a number of issues. But, but he's been strongly against these measures and a number of provincial leaders have, members of parliament. The Conservative Party of Canada has strongly opposed this. Um, which is good news because the previous leadership uh, in the Conservative Party with Aaron O'Toole was a complete disaster. It was this kind of progressive, progressive conservative idea of bringing people together and being inclusive and not uh, not being as fierce or as strong in their opposition to liberal orthodoxy. And that was a totally failed project. So we now have um, a bit of a change, a bit of a sea change going on with the Conservative Party who are now strongly condemning what's what's happening uh, right now. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And is it as divided as it is here in the States, right? Because it, we were <clears throat> in completely balkanized here in the States. If you have conservative leanings, you will adopt the views of the Conservative Party and all the very, you know, the, the issues now that become touch points for that. Right. And, and if you are liberal leaning, you'll go in the opposite direction. I mean, and you know, and, and the U S and which is a lot of what this podcast is about is about how there's someone of a si- uh, or I don't say a silent, but a quiet middle. And we have 330 million people out here. That means there's going to be a lot of people who don't choose one side or the other Canada. You have 37 million people. Is it that, is it that deeply divided um, between two sides or is there, a kind of great middle out there that because hey the cbc i mean 37 million i imagine they don't have an audience of 28 million people a night right their audience must be a relatively small fraction of the total citizenry citizenry of canada so are there people out there who might not be by nature conservative leaning or people who don't kind of uh, inherently oppose justin trudeau but who are seeing that this is being mischaracterized that this actually these protests actually were peaceful protest that it's it's you know it's people singing and dancing and kids on a moon bounce and things of that nature or are they that easily duped mm. yeah no i i think here in Canada, we have a multi-party system, right? It's not just Democrat versus Republicans, which I think is a totally antiquated and toxic and dysfunctional system that needs to be abolished in the United States. There, there can't just be two options. There, there should be multiple options. And, and that's what we have here. We have the Green Party, uh, People's Party of Canada's libertarian-leading party, the Conservative Party, uh, Liberal Party, and the NDP. So there's more diversity here. Uh, there's less of a uh, bifurcation of views and there's um, a broader spectrum of viewpoints here. And I, and, and, and there is, there is a silent kind of middle that whether they're NDP or even if they're liberal or they're conservative party or PPC, they are seeing this as an overreach. Um, I, I can't speak to polls right now. There's, there aren't as many recent polls looking at this um mm-hmm. 
uh, in, in light of what's been happening over the past like just four or five days because it's so new mm-hmm. um, hopefully hopefully more polls come out and we can look at some of the broader data on this but anecdotally i can tell you you talk to people you know around the block people who are everything from hard conservative to progressive there is this this at the very least skepticism towards the government declaring this national emergency Mm -hmm. and labeling this group as some far-right fringe minority um there is skepticism towards that and i mean i was just at the dentist office you know yesterday and i was talking to my dentist and and he's um as far as i can tell somewhat of a left-leaning guy although i don't know but we just had this conversation and he's like, like, what, like, this is totally insane. Like, how is this in any way? That, that's some what kind I was. Violent extremist coalition, and so, and I've talked to other people as well, and they also feel a similar way because, also, I think people who are on the left should oppose these big draconian governmental. Because these were traditionally right? uh, issues that that were near and dear to the left: civil liberties, protecting yeah. the citizens from government imposition, financial deplatforming. I mean, this is crazy, and I, I guess that that is my curiosity here: is does the average person look at the the government, Justin Trudeau's government, framing this as a as terrorist activity, invoking special powers? I mean, I want to read everybody the the text from the Emergencies Act that that was ostensibly used to justify. Um, invoking it here. It's got to be activity that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it. Does it seem like a a peaceful protest that does clog, that does use vehicles to clog a major thoroughfare, which is a crime and does need to be punished and addressed as a crime? Does that seem to rise to the level just described that was used to justify the Emergencies Act? Because, uh, and it just seems strange that even as as you mentioned, um, people in your community, your your doctor, your dentist, who might be a little liberal leaning and doesn't necessarily have, is not a natural sympathizer with those protesting vaccine mandates, uh, are, are does this spook them? You know, do they look at this type of government overreach and and see it as authoritarian in nature and something that we do not, we never contemplated and we do not allow in Western liberal democracies? Yeah, yeah. I, I think for people who are honest liberals, this is a complete travesty. It's a, a government overreach that we just... Like we could have never anticipated this a year ago that this that this would be happening, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have on the other side of the border, you have BLM protests and riots leading to over one billion dollars of property damages. You have various small communities um, in Minneapolis and Philadelphia that have been destroyed by the protests. By the way, which nobody talks about, you know, you have car dealers car dealerships in. Kenosha, Wisconsin, owned by like Indian immigrants that were destroyed by Antifa rioters, right? You have, you know, police precincts burning down in Portland and Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And, and the list goes on and on. There's, there was even, I remember in Minneapolis, there was a, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but a, a, I believe it was a housing project for low-income individuals that was burned down by Antifa rioters, mm-hmm. right? And and there was nothing, no federal response coming anything close to what Trudeau's doing here. And there's none of that. There's no burning down buildings or attacking police officers or doing any kind of violence or looting or any kind of radical activity. Yes, there are certain people on the fringes who have questionable views. There was 
couple of people seen in photos of swastikas and Confederate flags. In which we've got to view with a little suspicion. It's a little too convenient and odd that you've got the the vast majority of these uh, are checked out and, and journalists have gone in there and gotten their hands dirty and interviewed these people. And they're they're singing Christmas carols and um, and, you know, essentially creating a makeshift playground for kids. And there just happen to be a, a handful of Nazis um, uh, on the scene as well. That I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, but yeah, it, it, they're trying to they're trying to use these very um, they're trying to use the outlier ins- instances, and then you try to compare that to the the American government's re- uh, reaction or non reaction to actual rioting. And nobody, I mean, it, it, nobody can characterize what's going on with the truckers as rioting. It would be just too obvious if it were. Um, and a, a, a suspension of civil liberties and a, you know, kind of uh, for, first impression steps towards financial deplatforming is something that uh, is of dubious validity. And um, it's good to know that a lot of people are are starting to react to this. Um, there was one really, really interesting piece by Ross Douthat, who framed this as kind of a class war. I mean, his piece in The New York Times, a new class war comes to Canada. And the, he put it uh, through a very interesting dichotomy of those who exist and work in the digital sphere and can make their living off their laptops versus those who are blue collar workers or make their living in, in the real world amongst brick and mortar or with their hands. Right. Because the pandemic treated those two classes of people very differently. The the laptop class was able to retreat to their homes, get on their laptops and keep and continue to make money and keep their livelihood churning. Those who spend more time in in the real world and don't make their money on the internet or with digital or electronic tools, it was much more difficult. And this was to a certain extent um, a bit of a a rebellion from the from those who do uh, exist primarily in the brick and mortar world. I mean, the way that he he termed it was the virtuals versus the practicals. Um, interested to hear your thoughts on that. As is that really what's going on here? Is this a bit of a a class war between the the blue collar class and the white collar class that's now primarily digital? Yeah, no, I, that's a very interesting dichotomy there, and I I think there's a lot to be said um, on that. I, I think, yeah, I, I think especially like some people like truckers, um, nurses, people working on the front lines in restaurants. It's so bizarre how our perception towards those people have changed, right? This is another kind of corollary point here about yeah. how truckers were considered heroes a year ago and nurses were. And I remember my mom, she would always tell me like, hey, Rav, go get the pot and, and the... Uh, and the spoon and, you know, make the noises to, you know, show your support for frontline workers and all this. And then people on the left, people on the right, they were all united uh, in support for people who are sacrificing or putting themselves at risk, uh, but still doing this important work, whether it's um, delivering essential goods, uh, people working in the trucking business or nurses treating COVID patients, et cetera. And now we're firing people who are unvaccinated here in Canada, nurses, and also in the U.S. as well, nurses and truckers. Um, and, and, you know, for me, I guess I, I'm on the, the, the privilege side of things. I mean, talk about privilege. I, I'm on the privilege side of things in that I'm unvaccinated, but I'm not, but, but, but I am working online. I'm, I'm writing articles and doing podcasts and making my money that way. And so I'm, I'm extremely fortunate that I'm not, a well, blue collar worker 
Yeah, or, or in my case, I'm not an undergraduate student at Stanford or Harvard or even smaller colleges in the U.S., you know, studying there and the administration mm-hmm. cracking down on me like, hey, get your shots or get the fuck out. You know, you know, I'm not there either, thankfully, um, mm-hmm. which was actually my that was my dream in high school was to get into Stanford, Harvard or University of Chicago. I didn't get I didn't get into any of them. And, and maybe that was for the good. I could imagine my heart being broken and my um, uh, and then my whole educational de- trajectory being destroyed if I had to choose between that and my own personal uh, medical autonomy. Mm-hmm. So I, so, so, so this, this dichotomy plays out in my life uh, as well. Um, and seeing people, you know, family members working in the trucking or sorry, not family members, but having friends and relatives working in the trucking business who have to make these decisions. Yeah. For them, the, the pandemic has, you know, discriminated, right. It's it, the un- it's been uniquely it's been uniquely disruptive to their existence and and it's it's kind of it's you know almost eerie right and another uh another way that that douthat describes this dichotomy is even the way the weapons that have been used let's get to the tools that each side is using kind of reflect this this real world and digital divide in that the truckers in order to make you know their salvo in order to make their views heard they use their trucks they went and they parked their trucks on the bridge and on the thoroughfare what was trudeau's tool and weapon in response to freeze their digital bank accounts and and uh prevent them from raising money through crowdfunding websites it, it's uh, almost eerie it, it really does seem like this war between between those in the di- you know who pr- primarily exist in the digital world and those who primarily exist in the physical world um and interestingly enough i just see this now since we've you and i have begun this conversation quite a timely news break here is that trudeau has lifted the emergency powers he's uh he has revoked the Emergencies Act here, um, which is interesting because now we're thinking about, OK, well, what did he do all of this for? He he took an unprecedented step in suspending civil liberties and attacking his own citizens under you know generally false pretenses here only to revoke these powers a week later. Um, I, I'm still in, I guess, uh, at least my, the question to me, and, and may, I'm wondering if you have the same question is. Then what what was he doing in the first place? He couldn't have just ordered law enforcement to go and apprehend these people and detain them and put them through the the traditional uh, due, pro, uh, due process of the court system like any other criminals. And that he did this to, for seemingly no benefit, even acknowledging that it was generally un- unnecessary a week later. This all seems very strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just hearing this news for the first time. That's uh, wow. Okay, well, that that's some good news. For Crazy, once right? In Canada. Time, time to time to open up a beer here and celebrate a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, and then and then have a real party if if and when he hopefully lifts the vaccine mandates and I can get out of this freaking hellhole and actually you know do so you're still prevented there's still a domestic and international um uh, yeah. restriction air air travel restriction on anyone who's not ma- uh, vaccinated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there was various media opportunities that I've gotten over the past few months that I've just haven't been able to do in the States. So mm-hmm. hopefully Trudeau can do that and then, you know, give him credit where credit's due. But um, I think, you know, doing this for a week, I, th- I think he initially did it because th- there was a strong group of people that wanted him to assertively and firmly cracked down on these supposed violent extremist individuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, there, there was the one coalition that 
was like, okay, just drop the vaccine mandates and this will be done, mm-hmm. right? And, but that's not really Trudeau's base. I mean, part of it is, and that I think a lot of these like ideological bubbles are shifting and they're um, converging on a lot of these issues, I think. But no doubt. there was that, that there was Trudeau's base that wanted him to crack down more on this. So he, you know, his support has been sinking and he's deeply unpopular, by the way, even in liberal sectors of the country. Um, he, you know, he's running a minority government right now. Um, mm-hmm. And a recent recent poll showed that his support has been cut in half. Only about 16% of Canadians would vote for him after what he's been doing um, as of late. Um, and so I think he was showing this, like, this, you know, in a time of he was posturing. supposed he, he, he was... crisis, he was showing that he still does have authority and he still can exercise it. That, yeah. you know, Canadians, all these people who are opposing him are, you know, a, a, fringe, a fringe minority. And so he can show mm-hmm. his power by abusing it and to supposedly appease his base. But I, but I think that was a failed strategy. And, and given that he's now revoked it after a week, it was a, a total disaster and totally unnecessary. And it was not something that I think is going to help him in the long run. Yeah, it really feels like he was a guy playing a game that he was not built for. He was not built, you know, Trump, say what you want about him. He was built for hostilities. Justin Trudeau was not built for hostilities. He was there to look pretty in front of the camera and and project a, a kind, you know, a, a very surface, shallow um, uh, vision of Western liberal democracy in a very uh, polite and non-controversial country in Canada. And he wasn't used to, he wasn't used to having to get his hands dirty And he overplayed his hand um, well beyond what he needed to do in order to break, break the blockade. And, you know, he he kind of irretrievably impaired civil liberties in Canada. He 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 destroyed his own credibility. Sure, he might, you know, he he might solidify a little bit more of his base, but they weren't really going to leave him anyways. Um, And yeah, I think he he was he was flexing muscles he he didn't have, which is uh, and we we see how that usually turns out. Interesting, as Trudeau does release the Emergencies Act, but one aspect of this that is still, you know, troubling and but uh, very critical to you know uh, even retrospective analysis of the situation was the financial deplatforming um and what david sachs refers to as surveillance capitalism um and using this as a precept to you know to convince private organizations and financial institutions to stop doing business with certain private individuals um deeply disturbing in my in my eyes um uh what are your thoughts on on the financial deplatforming aspect of this and you know to the extent that this a social credit system or social credit score might be an exaggerated way of putting this but it does seem like the your average private citizen is more and more at risk of being punished through the uh, reduced access to uh, private businesses and financial services for certain political views or activities that are really within the norm, even if illegal, are within the normal boundaries of illegal activity. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the implications of this are quite dangerous and are quite ominous for what's to come in the future. I mean, you had one individual here that I wrote about in my piece who I haven't met her or interviewed her. I don't know her last name, but the local member of parliament tweeted about her. Her name is Brienne. Mm-hmm. She donated $50 to the protests and her account was frozen, her bank account. And like that, that is so egregious. Like that, that, like you, you, you know, you might hear that from like Russia or Ukraine or China. And it's like, 
Yeah. You know, like, like that, that would never happen here, but yet it just happened here. And I, I think it's, and, and I, I think the, the, the takeaway here is that governments can slide into oppression and tyranny so quickly yeah. once it can, once it can persuade and propagandize the public that there is such a big national emergency and the public mm -hmm. who are hostage to the mainstream state-sponsored media then just take these lies in and then the government just abuses their power right you convince the government that there's a big threat with you know iraq or with you know 9 11 all these previous things the war on mm -hmm. terror you you know you put enough fear in the citizenry um and then you can persuade them to to, to basically support anything or or at least get away with not 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 make not persuade the, the whole population of what they're doing is right but be able to do what they're doing without any major consequences for what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, you know, mean, the way I, it's always, it's, it's what a lot of the media would, you know, in the reverse direction, comment on as a protection of, of traditional norms during the Trump era. The Trump continued to violate norms and in and of itself violating those norms were dangerous, right? That there are no longer these boundaries and guardrails. And in certain, certain cases as applied to Trump, that was true. However, we, we also expect that there are guardrails in place that the government will not attack its will attack will not attack its own citizens and will not will honor certain civil liberties or there, there are checks on that they're they're inherent for, forget legal there are cultural and authoritative checks on how far they'll go in suspending or imposing on civil liberties and and we we've gotten accustomed to those being protected and those guard, guardrails being in place here in the western world but those might not no longer be in place like there's now and you're going to see that in a reaction from the financial community there's a lot of banks and financial financial institutions that in response to the um, Trudeau's uh, freezing of the bank accounts and financial deplatforming that said okay we're going to have to rethink our uh, our views on doing business in Canada because we don't know when the government's going to come in and tell us that we can or cannot serve a customer, that we can or cannot engage in a certain activity. And because these banks, they don't they don't exist to serve the government. They exist to serve customers. Mm -hmm. And the less government interference there is there, the better. Um, and it's, it's a really troubling uh, precedent in that regard. Um, and so, you know, interesting, uh, uh, as Trudeau seems to at least, I'm sure he won't admit defeat, but seems to recognize that um, he did overstep his boundaries and he and he needed to walk this back as soon as possible. And, um, you know, we'll have to see what this does culturally and and if it leads to any shifts in policies. I mean, are, am I correct in saying that all the, the provinces have released vaccine mandates or there's still a couple holding on to them? Um, no, I believe there are still a couple. Uh, Quebec just announced they'll get rid of them. So, so, so my province is one of those provinces uh -huh. that is not going to lift vaccine mandates anytime old, soon. Uh, British Columbia, right? Yeah, yeah, BC. But hope, hopefully by the summertime, they might change course. Because as we've seen in the U.S., the policy decisions are not driven by the science. They're driven by the polling numbers. They're driven yep. by politics. So once enough people are tired of this shit and they see mm -hmm. that you know, the vaccines, they you know, there's... Is, is stable uh, protection against uh, death and ICUs, which is all that matters, and mm -hmm. that vaccines aren't going to do anything for stopping or curbing transmission, then, but then potentially Trudeau might switch and might change his policies, like we've seen with uh, Boris Johnson in the UK, who's dropped vaccine passports. Like incredible, amazing. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. we, and, we, and we, you're seeing it here in the thing. U.S. You know, even today, and uh, yeah. I'll, I'll take a little bit of a victory lap on this one because uh, I pretty a lot of people um, took the other side of this bet about New York City, you know, densest city in North America, um, hardest hit by COVID, and they had vaccine mandates. They seem to be the uh, of these cities that have uh, of. Sorry. Of the cities that have vaccine mandates, they were enforcing it most stringently. And new mayor Eric Adams had come out in favor of maintaining at least vocal vocalized um, support of maintaining the mandates. And today he went ahead and announced that over the next month or so, they're going to be phasing them out. And it seems like every one of these dominoes that falls, you know, knocks over another one because much like a a lot of these politicians, want to react to the polling numbers in one direction. They also want to, they don't want to be the last one holding the bag. They don't want to be the last person trying to enforce restrictions on their citizens when everybody else has dropped them, um, which, you know, really speaks to the, the, uh, really speaks to how unjustifiable the mandates were in the first place because these are supposed to be permanent. If they really were that necessary for public safety, then th- th- these should not be temporary. But, um, you know, the, the domino falling with New York City, phasing these out over the next month or so, um, I can't imagine by at latest May 2020, there's, there's going to be any regions in North America still with vaccine mandates. But uh, we'll have to see how that yeah. prediction checks out. Um, so just sure. before we go, um, you've done some incredibly interesting work around your experiences with psychedelics. Um, um, you know, medicinal plant treatments um, and some kind of uh, adjacent treatments, MDMA, and and how, you know, and, and that definitely kind of funneled into your conversation recently with Jordan Peterson about uh, contemporary North Americans who are, are searching for, um, you know, it's kind of spiritual satisfaction or, or trying to yep. deal with pro- the, some of the, the uh, some, trying to deal with some of the, the difficulties and trials and tribulations of modern life. Love to hear a little bit more about your writing mm-hmm. and work that you're doing uh, on that issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just felt it was my calling over the past few months to, you know, as I'm, as I'm building my own platform to diversify a little bit and bring something new to the table and not for not just to be political or ideological or cultural but something that's totally different and this kind of mirrors you know what i'm kind of going through over the past several months as i've struggled with mental health issues and so it really did, it didn't start with a writing goal in mind it started with like a personal healing goal in mind mm-hmm. of like i i'm consistently you know lost in thought and kind of held hostage to whatever chaos is going in the external world whether that's social political ideological or within family like so many things you just can't control right like the you know there there are limits to how good a life a life can get right like you can do you can do so many things right you can have a loving wife and kids and make a lot of money and have a beautiful house that still doesn't inoculate you from the worst stresses and tragedies and forms of suffering so this has kind of been a spiritual journey for me of seeking. And so I've veered into mindfulness meditation. Um, I, I initially veered a bit into Christianity and kind of explored that and got kind of got a taste of it. But then I've mm-hmm. found myself more in the Eastern realm, looking at meditation, looking at Buddhist philosophy. And then from there, I kind of went into psychedelics over the past few months doing MDMA therapy, which... I, I wrote about in a recent Substack essay, which I, I promoted on Jordan Peterson's podcast as well. Um, and in that essay, I just write about my experience and how 
among so many different things, I think one, you know, one insight from that MDMA trip was that the, the mind is capable of being at peace right where it is and be free from, you know, political pressures and stresses or desires to be better, to achieve more money, you know, make more money or achieve higher career status, that there is a state of mind where you can be like at peace with what you are right now in this moment, right? And then this is starkly different from our ordinary sober waking state where we are just, and most people don't even realize this. Once you start meditating or once you've done a couple of psychedelic trips, you realize how fucking neurotic and manic and insane (laughs) and, and crazy you are inside your, your your head you're just always like checking twitter constantly you're looking at instagram or you know reading comments or you know somebody says something bad to you or you get rejected by this person and then yeah it's, just, for me it's it's those moments yeah. when you you start meditating and then you realize wait a second i've been clenching my jaw for six months straight <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and so if, if somebody feels really stuck or even if they are having a hard time meditating that there is I don't want to use the word shortcut, but there is a a different, there is a process you can undergo that is very powerful that can help your meditation. And that's psychedelics. For me, I've done MDMA. A lot of people have this, these kind of experiences with psilocybin and DMT um, and mescaline and LSD where they're, they're ingrained patterns of thinking and this kind of inertia of existence of you wake up and you check Twitter and Instagram, you have your coffee and you do this, this, and that, that can be completely disrupted. And you can see that, whoa, there is this state of equanimity, peace, contentment, and inner freedom that is to be found. And Mm -hmm. most people don't find it, unfortunately, but through these experiences, you can learn to live a more free and fulfilling and peaceful life. And so that's kind of my mission with this new Substack. And I kind of hope to bring that into the fold uh, in my writing alongside my continuing reporting on the more, you know, controversial issues like myocarditis and crime and policing and vaccine mandates and government authoritarianism and, and other issues. Fantastic. Spiritual health, spiritual freedom, something we're all searching for. And uh, a lot of people are, are you know, are becoming uh, at least aware of new and innovative ways to pursue both of those. And your work is, is certainly accelerating that. I think it's fascinating. Love the work that you've done so far. I'd have to say, you know, I'm going to go attribute this conversation to Trudeau uh, releasing the Emergencies Act. I think we did it here. He felt the force of this yeah. conversation and had to go ahead and announce it. Um, so, you know, Rob and I are going to take credit for that. But um, either way, Rob, yeah. thank you so much for joining me today. Um, tell everybody where they can find you on the Internet. Yeah, I'm at Twitter, Ravarora1, R-A-V-A-R-O-R-A-1, and Substack. Anybody who wants to subscribe, feel free to do so to get my weekly newsletters on unreported or underreported COVID truths and psychedelics, spirituality, mental health. I do that every week, a couple times a week or more, and that's Noble Truths with Ravarora. So if you search up ravarora.substack.com, you can find it there. Fantastic. That's Rob Aurora, one of the most interesting and talented young journalists and thinkers in the game. Rob, thank you once again. Yeah, appreciate it. 
I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.